Let's open our Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we'll continue in our study today through the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. As you're making your way there, if you're here last week, uh, I introduced chapter 15 to you with an illustration, I introduced you to a guy named Tim Treadwell. Tim Treadwell was the guy who was known as Grizzly Man, and his claim to fame uh, was uh, that he, people thought he was absolutely insane because he would... Uh, go up close and personal with grizzly bears. He'd go to the Katmai National Park there in Alaska. He'd set his tent up in the actual bear, right in the middle of the bear trails, um, everywhere where my wife would not want to be. He would be right there front and center. He would go up to the grizzly bears. He would touch the grizzly bears. He would interact with their cubs. Everything that would put you on the lunch menu, he did. And he was warned repeatedly that he was a fool for doing it. And ultimately, he and sadly his girlfriend were eaten uh, by grizzly bear. Um, and uh, it came as no surprise to the people that warned him uh, that it was only a matter of time. He was playing with fire, and he was, he was just playing loose and fast, and he shouldn't have been doing it. Well, I use that by way of illustration to introduce us to, or to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, because um, here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God shows up and speaks to, to Saul, and he tells him, look, you got to go utterly destroy the Amalekites. And, and basically, the Amalekites, they are a picture of sin. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. And uh, Esau, if you'll recall, he was the guy that traded his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. And, and, and basically, basically, when he did that, it revealed a couple things about Esau. First of all, that Esau was a guy who you know, had a very little value for his birthright. Um, and uh, profound spiritual implications of that. And the second thing it revealed is that how much he was controlled by his appetites, that, that he would think so little of his birthright uh, and, and just be so caught up in the moment that his appetites would lead him to, to really sacrifice eternal things for, for temporary things. And, and in that, what we see is that the Amalekites are a picture of our sin nature. They're, they're that part of us that, that readily sacrifices the, the eternal things for the temporary fleshly lusts. And there's only one way to deal with our sin nature, and that's to kill it. Uh, the Apostle Paul told the Colossians as much in Colossians chapter 3. He said, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. But Saul didn't listen to God. God told him, I need you to, to wipe out the Amalekites. And, uh, and Saul didn't listen. He decided that he was going to spare Agag, the king of the Amalekites, that he was going to keep the best of the Amalekites' stuff. And ultimately, what we see in, and what we will see in Saul's life, and if you were with us when we were going through uh, the book of Esther, we saw that in, in her life as well. Uh, basically, the, the Amalekite, it's an Amalekite that's going to kill Saul, ultimately. If he would have obeyed God and destroyed the Amalekites, he would not have had an Amalekite kill him. And uh, there, you know, Haman, uh, this, this uh, you know, wicked guy uh, there uh, in, uh, you know, in, in the Old Testament, he's, he's a guy that almost destroys uh, the, the Israelites and um, comes very close to, to, to wiping them out. God knows what he's talking about when, uh, when he commanded that they should, um, they should destroy, utterly destroy the Amalekites. What we're going to do today is, um, is we're going to look at the mistakes that Saul made 
in, in his failure to obey God and to kill the Amalekites. And there's a lot of instruction there for us. It's been said that those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it. And so this is, this is very instructive for us in that we want to, to learn from Saul's mistakes um, and uh, we, we want to you know, be able to, to, to grow uh, from that. It's been said there's no teacher like the burnt finger. Uh, there's three mistakes that Saul made and that are, are addressed here in chapter 15. Uh, those three things are this, with, that Saul boasted of things that were not true. Saul blamed others for his failures, and Saul borrowed the reputation of others. We're going to get through two of these today, uh, and that'll set the stage for us to, uh, to meet David uh, next time as we contrast the Saul trying to borrow the reputation of Samuel when he doesn't have one of his own, and then God replacing uh, Saul uh, for the man who, who does have the reputation, the man after his own heart, David. Um, we're going to look at that uh, next week. But first of all, uh, we start looking uh, at, hey, Saul boasted of things that were not true. First Samuel, we left it off in, uh, in verse 10 of chapter 15. And we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, before I get into the examining of Saul boasting of things, we've got to address this issue of, uh, of, Saul, of uh, the Lord being grieved here. Uh, when he says, I greatly regret that I've set King Saul up as king. What does it mean when God regrets? Uh, does, does it mean that God made a mistake? Does it mean that God changed his mind? No, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that at all. The Bible tells us that God is immutable. That's one of his attributes. In other words, God, he does not change. And God says this of himself in, in Malachi chapter 3. He says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. See, when God told Samuel that he regretted making Saul king, it's not that he changed his, his mind, it's that he changed his method. Uh, the 16th century uh, theologian John Trapp, he wrote, God's repentance is not a change of his will, but of his work. Repentance with man is the changing of his will. Repentance with God is the willing of a change. See, this is an, uh, uh, an anthropomorphism. Uh, this, is, this is when God explains himself uh, to man using human terms. God is not a man, he is God, um, but uh, often what he'll do so that we can have an understanding of his heart, a supernatural divine being, how can we understand him? Well, he'll often use these uh, anthropomorphisms where he will uh, explain himself to us in human terms. See, God knew Saul's destiny and what he would do with his free will from the beginning. Uh, he knew from the start that, that Saul would fall. He knew from the start that he would have to seek a man after his own heart in the, in the person of David. Um, it, God knew all of this, yet as all this unfolded, God's not, his heart isn't emotionless in this. Even though he knows this is going to happen, it's not as though he lacks any sort of feeling. I mean, God's not up in heaven with a clipboard just sort of checking things off as they happen. He's emotionally connected uh, to, to, to what's happening here. And so Saul's disobedience, it hurt God, and the best way for God to explain it is in human terms. I regret that I've, that I've made Saul the king. 
Now, it's also worthwhile for me to point out here, just before we move on to our first point, um, that, that um, Samuel was heartbroken over what God was heartbroken over. That ministered to me this week in a great way. See, because what we read there in verse 11, as, as the Lord expresses his regret, and that basically he's, he, he's going to remove King, King Saul from the kingship, he's going he's to take him out, what we see is that Samuel cried out to the Lord all night long. That ministered to me this week because, you know, so often it's our tendency when we have a brother who has sinned or fallen into sin or a sister that's fallen into sin and we can get so mad at them and so upset with what they've done that we can kind of pile on, that we can sort of, you know, rather than having a heart that breaks for them, we're like, God, take them out, you know, kind of deal. That's our attitude. We, he's got it coming to him, you know. I'm so mad at that guy. He's so fed up with that guy. He's such a loser. Lord, just take him out, you know, kind of, kind of attitude. And that is not the heart of God. And I love that Samuel, his response is to weep, it's just to, to cry out all night long. He's heartbroken over what breaks the heart of God. And again, not, not, not a main point here, but just something that I take note of and that maybe, you know, we, we can take a walk with. It, it brought me to a place of repentance this week, and, and so I share that. Now, we continue verse 12. <clears throat> so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Here's Saul. I mean, he has, he's, you know, in disobedience to God. He's done his own thing. He's operating independently. And he's proud. He's boastful of it. He's, he's set up a monument to himself. And you see his attitude as we continue. It says, Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed... The, the commandment of the Lord. In other words, what Saul is saying to Samuel when he shows up is, dude, you're so blessed that I'm around. Check me out. I'm awesome. And, and that, this is Saul's attitude. You're so blessed to the Lord that, that, that I did what God you know, called me to do. But Samuel said in verse uh, 14, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? I mean, here Saul is professing that he's done something, and now Samuel's like, well, your sin cries out. It's not unlike when, when you know, in, in Cain and Abel, and, you know, they, they had their, their little, you know, bout together, and Cain killed his brother, and the Lord shows up, and uh, he's like, where's your brother? He's like, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says to him, the blood of your brother cries out to him. Your sin, is, it cries out. And you can protest it all you want, but, but for, for so many, your sin is just loud and clear for everyone around to see. And this is the case when Samuel, he shows up, he's like, what's up with all the sheep? What's up with all the goats? All the stuff that you were supposed to destroy, it cries out. Your sin is, is you know, screaming. Here, that, that, that you've been in sin. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. So he totally passes the buck. He blames others. But more than that, then he goes, They, they, they spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Hello, what's that tell us about Saul's place right here? He is far from God. It's not the Lord his God. It's the Lord your God. And then he, he says, And the rest... 
we have utterly destroyed. You see what Saul does there? He's like, they're bad, but all the good stuff that happened, that's us. That's we. I'll include myself in that. You know, and so he's just completely uh, <laughs> in, uh, in sin here. And um, then Samuel said to Saul, verse 16, shut your mouth. And that's when he says, be quiet, that's exactly it. He's like, this is what you're doing, and this is what you need to do. Shut up, you know. And, and then he says, uh, uh, sorry, and, and he says, be quiet, and I will tell you, what the Lord said to me last night, and he, Saul, said to him, speak on. And so Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of all the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you over the king over Israel? And now the Lord sent you on a mission, and he said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. And why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I've brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. I, I, you know, I have done this. I've done, I've done all this. But the people, he says, verse 21, uh, took of the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, and the best of the things, which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And so Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, he's saying, look, God's not interested in your religious ritual. That's not the high and holy mark for God. That's not what satisfies the heart of God. You know, that's to atone for your sin. What satisfies God is, is that you, you wouldn't sin in the first place. He, he, God, what would satisfy him is if you just listen to him and obey his voice. He, he's not interested in your sort of makeup offerings there. He says in verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord uh, and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, first mistake that Saul made, which led to his failure, is that Saul boasted of things that were not true. It's the very first point, if you want to write it down. Saul boasted of things that were not true. Look again there in verse 20. What's Saul say? He says, but I have obeyed the Lord. I have obeyed the Lord. And he, he says, you know, I went on the mission. That's true. Uh, I, uh, I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. That's not true, Saul. You did not utterly destroy them. And he says, and I brought back King Agag. And the, and the issue there is, yeah, Saul, that's not what God told you to do. So what you've got, Saul, is that you've got partial obedience and you've got, you know, you operating on your own independent agenda doing what you, what you want to do and not what the Lord has commanded you to do. It's a perfect example of a quote I shared with you guys last week from Alexander McLaren, which is this, that partial obedience is complete disobedience. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. And this is a huge problem in Christianity today. I want to camp out here for half a second because this is really important for us. This is a huge problem in the body of Christ. This, this problem of partial obedience. 
See, because you, we have Christians that would say, just like Saul says, oh, I, I have obeyed the Lord. We have Christians today that would say, you know what, I'm obeying the Lord. Yeah, but you know what, I like to go out and party with my friends on the weekend. I, I'm obeying the Lord, but you know, I like to take a little, smoke a little weed every now and then, take the edge off, you know. I, ha- I am, I'm totally obeying the Lord. I'm obeying the Lord. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian man. Well, yeah, my girlfriend and I sleep together, but I'm obeying the Lord. See, you know, you, you, yeah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, you're sleeping with your, with your boyfriend? Yeah, but he says he loves me. You know, we're going to get married, you know. Yeah, but are you sleeping with your boyfriend? Well, yeah, but God knows my heart. What, that it's deceitfully wicked above all things? And that's what the Bible says. Yeah, and I've, I, I, I can't tell you. I mean, I've, I've had numbers of people tell me, well, God knows our heart. Yeah, okay, so that just makes it all right. You know, you, you, you just completely disobey your parents, clean out their bank account or whatever, steal their car. Oh, but they know my heart. It's, it's no difference. It's the same thing. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this. He says, as he writes this letter to the Corinthians, it's actually reported that there's sexually, sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together among, uh, uh, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now he says there in in verse 1, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. Now that that phrase, sexual immorality, in the Greek, it's it's the word pornea. And and this this literally means sex that is forbidden by law. And it's a junk drawer term. It basically encompasses all of sexual immorality. So when he says, you know, that there that it's reported that there is sexual immorality, he uses this junk drawer term, and it could apply to, you know, adultery, uh, which is, you know, sex either outside of your marriage or you have sex with somebody else who is married. That's adultery. Fornication, when you're having sex outside of a marriage vow. That's fornication. Uh, it could apply to homosexuality. It could apply to you know, other forms of sexual sin. It's just this junk drawer term for hey, sexual immorality. And the, the, the reason I think that Paul uses this junk drawer term for sexual immorality is because people are sneaky. And, and, and the, you know, so if the Bible doesn't specifically mention their sin, they're going to insist it's okay. Well, well, you know, Jesus didn't specifically say anything about homosexuality. 
Well, he didn't say anything about child molestation either. It doesn't make it okay. By the way, people who say that Jesus never spoke about sexual immorality or about homosexuality, they're actually wrong. Because Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but that he came to fulfill the law. And then not even the smallest detail of the law will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And the law expressly calls homosexuality a sin. And additionally, the Bible says that all Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is is God-breathed, that it's inspired of God, right? And and so if the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is God-breathed, as the Bible says it is, which it is, and if then you read in John's Gospel where we read, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of Jesus Christ, which is what we celebrate at Christmas... Emmanuel, which means God with us, God giving us His Son, Jesus, God with us, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, you put all that together and you go, well, you know, Jesus is the Word, Old Testament and New Testament. And so He did specifically speak about homosexuality and of it being a sin. And so what Paul says here to the Corinthians is he says, look, there's sexual activity that's, by, that's, that, that's uh, forbidden by God, and it's there in the church. You guys have it. It's happening in the church. And he says not only is that sexual activity that's happening within the church, not only is it forbidden by God's law, but Paul says what you're doing is even perverse to the Gentiles. You know, and we don't know what's happening here. It says a man has his, his father's wife. I, we don't know what that is. Is it his mom? Is it his stepmom? I, I don't know. It's Kentucky freaky is what it is. You know, it is just something backwoods sort of family tree straight up and down type of stuff. It's nasty. And here's the deal. Cicero, who is an ancient Roman writer, he said that this type of incest was an incredible crime and that it was practically unheard of. You've heard of the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? Well, the Romans didn't even do this. The Romans says, that's nasty. Now, you know something's wrong when when the unbelieving world looks at the church and says, what you guys are doing there is nasty. That's yucky. You're like, somebody, this is a, we've gotten off track here in a big way. That's what's going on. And this is what Paul is addressing here. So, if you believe the gay pride line, which is, you know, hey, two consenting adults have the freedom to do whatever they want to do. And who are we to judge? So, if you believe that line, then that would apply here. That, you know, this this, this guy and his mom can can shack up together, and and they'd be like, ah, you know, two consenting adults. This fits, you know, the criteria. And incredibly... That was the church in Corinth's response. That's, that's their attitude. They're like, oh, it's cool. Now, Paul's point here is to say, it shouldn't be anybody's response, let alone the church. That, that ought not to be the response. And so here's what Paul says in verse 2. He says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now that phrase puffed up, it's an interesting phrase. We get the word bellows from this phrase. And, and literally, what it, what it mean, or metaphorically, what it means, it's used for being puffed up with pride. 
And so, and so what Paul is saying this, he's saying, look, this thing is happening, this sexual immorality is happening, and you're proud of it. You've got bumpers and bumper stickers and parades, and you're proud of what's going on. And he says, you know, you've got this attitude, oh, we're tolerant, and we're diverse, and we're open-minded. Because God is a God of love, and who are we to judge? And Paul's like, you shouldn't, shouldn't you rather have mourned? Shouldn't you have just been heartbroken? Somebody in the church would be acting like this. One of your brothers and sisters in Christ would be doing this thing. Shouldn't you rather, he says, put the person who did this, shouldn't they be taken away from you? And that phrase, taken away, it means literally to lift up and remove. He, should, he says, shouldn't that rather be what happened? I used to work with a guy in, in the fire department. He came home and he found his 16-year-old daughter having sexual relations with her 18-year-old boyfriend on his couch. And, you know, dads in the room represent, right? So, what, so what's this guy do? He's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Is that, is that what he did? No, that's not what this dad did. He grabs the guy by the back of the head, and he grabs his pants, which, you know, are, are down, but he grabs the pants, and he pulls the pants up, and one motion picks the guy up, and he physically carried him to the door and threw him out of the door, which, you know, I think any rational guy would go, well, yeah, of course, that's what, that's what you do. Now, does, does, it's not so much that the guy wanted to harm him, although, you know, homicidal thoughts are not outside the realm of possibility in that scenario but it's not so much his, his main motivator wasn't to hurt the guy as much as it was to protect his daughter right I mean seriously he wants to, to protect her and that's what this idea of taken away means you know Paul's you know the, the, the heart is look somebody needs to show that sin to the door somebody needs to show that guy to the door Put him, put him outside of fellowship. And we can talk about that for a long time. It kind of goes, you know, off in another direction that I don't want to go in. But basically the idea is putting him out of fellowship so that the world will work him over and he'll come to the place where he recognizes, I need to repent and I need to come back into fellowship with the people in the body of Christ. And so often what the, what the church does is they, you know, it's like, oh, God's a God of love and we're going to love and we're going to be excited. And there's no consequences for that person. There's nothing that happens in that guy's life to help him along to get to the path of, look, you're in sin and then you're in rebellion and you can't have fellowship with God and live like that. And so that's the idea of putting them out of fellowship. It's for their best interest that we want to do that. But what's going on here in the heart of 1 Corinthians 5 is, look, you can't, you got to take that stuff away. You, you, you got to show that punk to the door. And, and I ask you the question, what's in your life that you got to show to the door? What needs to be taken away in, in your life? Now, he says something significant as we just stay here in 1 Corinthians for a minute. In the next few verses, verse 3, he says, For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so <clears throat> done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, there's this nonsensical myth that people perpetuate. They'll basically say, look, unless you know all about me, unless you know my heart and my background and my struggles, then you can't really judge me. Paul says here, hey, look, I'm not even there, and I'm judging. 
And I'm saying, here's what's good. And we, we get off on this whole trip as Christians, like, oh, you, you can't judge. The Bible calls us, as Christians, to judge sin. It does. It calls us, to, as Christians, in the book of Hebrews, that we need to consider one another. The word is scopio. It means that we're to look intently at one another's lives, not for the purpose of tearing each other down, not for playing the God squad so I can be, you know, Mr. High and Holy, but so that I can spur, we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews. And so, so there, there's this nonsensical myth that, hey, look, unless you know all about me, you can't judge me. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I know all I need to know. The, the, everything I need to know, look, I'm not there, but I can make the call. You don't always need to get all the facts. Some things are black and white, and they're very simple. Are you having sex outside of marriage? The answer is yes, then you're in sin. Oh, well, yeah, but, you know, we're married in our hearts. It doesn't matter. You're in sin. I mean, it's just, it's just black and white. Well, you know what? You, you, you haven't even met with me. You know, I, don't, I don't need to meet with you. Well, you don't even know my story. Oh, I know the part that matters, right? And, and so the, what I want you to understand, the Bible isn't subjective. It doesn't work on some sort of sliding scale. The Bible doesn't say, hey, look, you, know, you need to avoid sexual immorality unless your stepmom's really hot, <laughs> right? And I can't even believe that, that, we, that we say that out, out loud in church, but we do. You know, and, and we have to understand it doesn't work on a sliding scale. It doesn't say, you know, flee the appearance of evil unless, you know, you're going to get married eventually and you're, you're married in your hearts and you love one another and it's just financially more convenient for you to live together before you get married. I, I was having dinner, uh, Brenda and I were having dinner with uh, Brian and Kelly Bell, the, the pastors of Calvary Chapel Murrieta, and I, I mean, we've known them forever. And, and just last week we were having dinner together and we were talking and Brian and I were talking about you know, pre-marriage counseling, you know, just our experiences, and, uh, and how often you know, you'll be in the course of talking to somebody who wants to get married and all, and, and as you're in the process of talking to them, you know, it's like, oh, hey, can I ask you some tough questions? Well, yeah, okay. <clears throat> are, um, are you sleeping together? You know, yeah, well, yeah, but we're not, you know, are you living together? Well, yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm sleeping on the couch or whatever. I mean, it got to the point, it got so bad for me at one season in my ministry that, that eight out of ten of the people that I talked to in premarriage counseling were living together, and nine out of ten of the people were sleeping together before marriage. And it was just this common thing. And, 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 and you know, you would talk to the person, and, and inevitably it would be like, you know, they'd try and justify it. Oh, I, you know, we're living together, but, um, you know, I sleep on the couch. Look me in the eye and tell me that you aren't having sex. You mean to tell me you're, you're sleeping on the couch and you've, you've, ne- you've never had sex and you don't occasionally have sex? Well, I can't, I can't say that. Uh-huh. You can't go on a diet in a donut shop, buddy. It's not going to happen. <clears throat> you know? And, and so, so the, the issue is, is people think they're the exception to the rule. And, and I just ask you the question, what rule do you think you're the exception to? Now, now, here's what I ask that, and here's what I need you to see. Like Saul, the, the Corinthians boasted of something that wasn't true. Hey, praise the Lord. You know, I, I, I totally did what the Lord called me to do. Really? You really did that? The Corinthians go, oh, we're Christians. We're tolerant. We're diverse. We're loving. Paul says, no, you're boasting of something that isn't true. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
You're engaged in sexual sin. If you've been a member here for any length of time, you know all about leaven. And if you're new, let me just give you the short version, okay? Leaven is yeast, and when you put yeast in dough, its job is to rot the dough. That's what leaven does. It rots the dough. As the dough rots, gas is released, and as the gas is released, those bubbles permeate through the dough and it rises. When the dough rises from yeast, it's because the dough is rotting. Now, when you bake that bread and you cut into it and you see all those little nooks and crannies, that's, that's the result of, of, of leaven that has rotted and started to ferment inside the dough. And you go, oh, that's disgusting, but it tastes so good, doesn't it? It's just so awesome, and it's a perfect picture of sin. It just tastes good. Sin, slin, sin is pleasurable for a season, but it's always too short, and it always kills you. See, so, so, that, so that's the picture of, of leaven, and this is you know, what, what Paul says in the Corinthians. He's like, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What on earth are you guys doing? See, because the Corinthians boasted of something that wasn't true. And so did Saul. Saul says, hey, blessed are you, the Lord. I performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel says, you're boasting of something that isn't true, man. To obey is better than sacrifice. Well, that's the first mistake that we see Saul made that led him to his fall. He boasted of things that were not true. The second mistake that Saul made that led to his downfall is that Saul blamed others for his failures. Saul blamed others for his failures. Back in 1 Samuel... Look with me again, verses 14 and 15. But Samuel says, What then is my, this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen, which I hear? So, hey, I've, I've obeyed the Lord. He's like, really? No, you haven't. Your sin is crying out. Verse 15, And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep, the ox, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He's blaming, hey, they did it. The people did it. You know, drop drop down uh, there and look again at at verse uh, 20. And and the Lord said to, to, and Saul said to Samuel, but but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag of the Amalekites. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people, verse 21, took of the plunder, the sheep, the ox, uh, the oxen, and the best of the things, which should have been utterly, oh, you're right, they should have been destroyed. So he knew better, but it's the people's fault. And he says again in verse 24, I have sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. See, again, even that, when he says, I've sinned, he's making this confession, but it's this backhanded uh, confession. It's this backstroke kind of thing where ultimately he's saying, it's the people's fault. Saul blamed others for his failure. And this was Saul's MO. He's always blaming other people. With Saul, it was always somebody else's fault. Chapter 13, when Saul made the sacrifice, he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come to make the sacrifice. Samuel was delayed in his coming. Saul freaks out. He takes matters into his own hand. He makes the sacrifice, which is a great sin in the eyes of the Lord. Samuel gets up. He's like, what are you doing? And what's Saul's response? Well, it's your fault. You were late. Where were you, man? Saul totally makes it Samuel's fault, passing the bug. It's somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. 
Chapter 14, the Lord won't answer his prayer. He, he had everybody, hey, I want everybody to fast. Nobody, nobody eats anything. And then all of a sudden, now he's inquiring of the Lord and God won't answer him. And he's all of a sudden sure, well, God's not answering us because, you know, somebody here broke this fast. That's not why God wasn't answering him. God wasn't answering him because he imposed a foolish fast. God's like, I'm not, I'm not showing up and I'm not playing your game, Saul. And now here he is again. He's blaming the people. Hey, they took the plunder. Don Wilder said this. He says, excuses are the nails used to build a house of failure. Excuses are the nails used to build a house of failure. Let me ask you, what are your excuses? Are you characterized by blaming others for your sin, for your faults, for, 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 for what you've done? My boss fired me. He's such a jerk. No, he fired you because you're lazy. He fired you because, you know, you call in sick all the time. You used up all your sick days. You called in sick so many times you had to call in dead because you didn't have any sick days left, you know? You got, a, you got a lousy work ethic. You made me so mad. You made me lose my temper. No, you're a hothead. You're, you're absolutely a guy that doesn't have control of, his, of, of his, his personality and doesn't have control of himself. You're totally in the flesh. It's, a fruit, it's not a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. The Bible says that, you know, the works of the flesh are obvious. Outbursts of wrath, that's you. Take a walk with it, man. See, we, we tend to... to all of us have those ready excuses in our back pockets, but some of, for some of us here, I would just ask you to consider maybe that's your regular MO. And, and I want you to look at it this way. Because, you know, I, I throw out, and, and sometimes, you know, in the, in the course of teaching, I'll say some difficult things. Like, you know, oh, you know, my boss fired me, he's a jerk. No. I think he fired you because you're lazy. People are like, I can't believe you said that to me. Well, maybe you're in the position you are because more people haven't said that to you. you know? but, the, but, the, but the fact of the matter is, is that we get to the place, and I want you to think about this from Saul's perspective. You hear my heart on this. If Saul had been at the place where he would have taken a long look in the mirror, if Saul were someone who, who truly would have taken a walk with his actions and said, that's me. That's on me. I sinned. Do you think that God would have removed him? Now, I don't think he would have removed him. And I'll tell you why I don't think he would have removed him. Because what we're going to see is God's going to replace Saul with David, a man after his own heart. And David, although will prove to be a godly king, he has a pretty catastrophic series of failures in his life as well. And, and here, you know, in... In his failures, what we see in David is that rather than blaming somebody else for his failure, he's characterized by saying, I've sinned against the Lord. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. He owns it. He completely repents. And so we have in the example of David, a man who rather than blaming others would take the personal responsibility and would repent, would confess his sin. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and, and David was characterized by doing this. Saul was not. 
We have another example biblically. There, there's, we have the example of the Apostle Peter who denied the Lord, and we have Judas Iscariot who denied the Lord. Both of them denied the Lord. And yet the obituary of Judas Iscariot is that he went to his own place, went out and hung himself, and went to hell, separated from God eternally. He never confessed. He never repented. But we have an example in, in Peter who denied the Lord three times. And yet he confessed, he repented, and, and he's restored the ministry. And so, so this is an important thing for us to get, that, that man, part of Saul's train wreck is that he, he was characterized of blaming others for his failures and not owning it and repenting. Think about, think about this. I mean, you see other examples in this. Genesis chapter 3 comes to my mind. I think about Adam. There he is. You know, God creates Adam and Eve and, and puts them in the garden to tend to everything and basically says, look, you can have everything, but stay away from the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can partake of everything else, but you can't take, partake of the fruit of that. What happens? Eve gets tempted by Satan. She eats it. She gives some to Adam. He eats it. God shows up. Where are you? They're hiding from him. And who's God go calling for? Well, he calls for Adam. And why does he call for Adam? Because <clears throat> God put Adam in charge. And, and, and so there he is, and Adam's in charge, and Adam has this responsibility. He's the covenant head, which means that, that his responsibility is to lead his wife in such a way that he encourages her to honor the Lord and to trust the Lord and so on. And so God says, hey, you know, where are you? And what have you done kind of thing? And, and Adam's response is what? It's that chick you gave me, Lord. It's that woman you gave me. That's a quote. It's that woman you gave me. That's the thing. He's just constant. He's just ready just to go, it's all her fault. She did it. And, and, and God's like, no, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't work like that, man. And, and it makes it sound like, oh, you know, there's an old Puritan proverb that says, why Adam was away, uh, Eve straight. Um, well, Adam wasn't away. If you read the text, he was right there with her when she was deceived. He just wasn't doing anything, which is a picture of a lot of husbands these days. They're, 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 they're there, but they're, they're not interjecting. They're not doing anything uh, about it. But Adam's so quick to say, oh, Lord, it's, you know, it's, it's her fault. True confession time. This is, this is me bearing my soul here in front of a few hundred of my closest friends. Um, okay, so... Uh, my wife, she has made it very clear to me on a number of occasions that, that one of the things that breathes life into her is that when we pray together, she, she wants me to pray with her. And so, you know, and prayer is one of those things. It is, it is, a, it is a weapon uh, in, in the, you know, the demonic realm. It's what Satan will go after. If you get into a fight with somebody and all of a sudden you pull out a knife or a gun, all the focus goes on the knife or the gun. Let's get that away you know, from you kind of thing. And so the moment you go to prayer, that's what the enemy attacks. So in our marriage, what do you think it is that the enemy's always attacking? It's, he's attacking us praying together. And, and so for me, it's, it, it's one of those things where I'm like, Man, I mean, I pray, you pray, we're, we're, you know, we're constantly, you know, we're in the ministry for crying out loud. We're praying all the time. And, and why is it so hard for, for us to pray together? And I, I told her that the other night, I'm like, here's my problem. Because when we, when we get together and pray, our times of prayer are quite typically, you know, early in the morning or late at night. 
And, uh, and so what happens is the predominant is late at night and we'll be, we'll be in bed and we'll be praying and all of a sudden my wife will start snoring next to me as prayer is asleep. And so, so I, I find myself, I'm like, I'm like, you know why I don't pray with you more when, when we go to bed? Because you just go to sleep. I'm trying to blame her for my disobedience, right? And she goes, oh, is that so bad? Your wife who has insomnia as her best friend gets such peace and such comfort when her husband prays with her that she goes to sleep, you know? And, I, and I'm like, and, and the Lord's speaking to me. I mean, I'm putting the message together. He's always right there as I put the message together. The Lord's like, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me kind of thing. And, I'm, and this is one of those areas where it's like, you know, what do you blame others for? Saul blamed others for his failure. And, I'm, and I got this message percolating in my head. And God's like, seriously? Right now, Ted, you're going to blame Brenda for your failure in this area? And I'm like, no, I'm going to own it. Ironically, a couple, a couple nights later, she was praying and I fell asleep. She's like, oh, who's, who's falling asleep? And I'm like, oh, man, I, I got not to do that. The issue is, is that what are your excuses? That's, that's, that's my question. I mean, are, are you, do you blame others for your failures? Because we have to be, if we're going to grow, you got one or two choices. You're either going to blame somebody else and you're not going to grow and you're going to be further down the road of failure or you're going to take responsibility when you, when you have something that you've come up against, some sort of failure. Someone, you know, turn your critics into coaches, man. Somebody has something adverse to say, take it to the Lord in prayer and go, is there, is there something in there that I need to own? Man, we would all be so much better off if we would do that, right? So critically important. By the way, let me just say this. You know, uh, um, it, it's not just, you know, husbands. I give you the, the example of, of Adam and, and his failure and, and so on, but but. You know, I hear this argument the other way, too, where, where a wife will say, look, I understand biblically the role of submission. I understand I'm supposed to submit, but, you know, I can't submit because, and she'll give an excuse, because the way that her husband's behaving. And, the, and it works both ways. The issue is don't make excuses. Don't blame somebody else. Take ownership for what you're being disobedient in, right? Amen. We need to do that. Um, Again, my question, what are your excuses? What areas are you blaming others for in your failures? Now, we're not going to get into the third point. I found that out for service, kind of expected it. Um, and so we're, gonna just, we're just going to stop the message right there. Um, two important things to take a walk with this week. Hey, uh, are you believing things that aren't true? Hey, I've totally honored the Lord. Really? Do you have sin in your life that, that, that is unconfessed, that's unrepented of? Do you have things that you're, that you're sweeping under the rug in your life? Praise the Lord. I've honored the Lord. I've obeyed the Lord. Really? Take a walk with that. <clears throat> and secondly, are you blaming others? Something else to take a walk with this week.